0: Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the internet has on the world. So who's Leah devin Sarentino? I'm an artist, currently living in San Francisco. This show, conceptual artist, designer, podcaster, James T. Green and I discuss the greatness of Vine and the need for more education around self-promotion. The two of us as new media artists also talk about the challenges of valuing art in a digital age and how the romantic idea of the starving artist is getting kind of old. I have James T. Green over the internet talking to me. How you doing, man? Hey. So tell us Great. a little bit about yourself.
0: So I am a conceptual artist and I am also a designer and developer. I own my own business called On the Firefly, where we do design and developing consulting for small businesses, primarily folks in the arts, and I also do a podcast as well, two of them, one called Open-Ended, where we explore the human side of technology, and another called Refresh, where we talk about more of the geeky side of technology, and yeah.
1: Where can people find you online?
0: All right, so my home base is jamesdgreen.com, and from there, you can find my Twitter, underscore jamesdgreen, and I think that's where we can start.
1: Okay so two things about your introduction that i like (laughs) one i also describe myself as a conceptual artist and i don't know about you but it's oh i always pause when i say it it's like hard for me to say for some reason because it's like oh all art has a i don't know it adds i feel like it adds like a like a little douche hat for me (laughs) like
0: really really (laughs) You know, I used to have that same feeling about it, but then I realized that I just owned it. Um, it just seemed like the easiest way to describe it versus saying, like, I am this type of artist or I am that type of artist, you know? So yeah. it's just like, you know what? Everybody's going to be that way in some kind of way. So
1: Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is I love that you described my home base like as your oh, website yeah. <laughs> so two, one i'm going to be now more empowered when i call myself a conceptual artist and two i'm going to start referring to my website as my home base
0: yeah.
1: i'm going to steal that I've right
0: used to this introduction thing, so <laughs>
1: yeah and speaking about stealing let's okay. talk about vine Yes. I, I've talked about Let's Vine talk. a lot on um, the podcast, but I have noticed that a lot of my contemporaries, except for my few enlightened friends, are not super savvy or engulfed in Vine. And I'm in love with this looping video app.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel bad for everyone who is not up to up to snuff with Vine. Honestly, it's probably one of my best forms of entertainment.
1: I actually judge people when I say like a Vineism like something that's like really popular on vine and i can see in someone's eyes that they don't get it right. i'm immediately disappointed but i can connect with somebody immediately if i say something like barely and they look at me and they know exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's like you it's like now my way of determining new friends
0: yeah, I was at I was at, I was doing a hackathon over the weekend and I made a what are those reference to somebody who was wearing like some really whack socks and like only <laughs> one person <laughs> who was in earshot. <laughs> totally hurt
1: me. I and like. I felt like the one are those like kind of migrated its way to the internet top. Like I, no. I the internet being cream. <laughs> like I would assume <laughs> that one of those made it. But you shared with me a few looping vines, and there's a ton out there. People take just normal videos and then like overlay them with trap songs or popular rap songs. I have a lot of feels about this. The positive oh, ones. I'm excited
0: to learn about this. I'm excited <laughs> to hear your feels on this.
1: Yeah. My the positive ones are Vine has revolutionized the way music is distributed. Seriously, I learned about so much music from Vine. I learned about so many artists that I feel like I would never have had an introduction to if it wasn't for how connected people were in Vine to the music community. I wasn't surprised at all when the app added like a music overlay feature because right. it's like the modern day music video in 7 right. seconds.
0: And that's actually very, very fascinating because it does really break down the sort of barrier to entry and making not only. Um music videos, but also things that snap together on beat. Like, I tried to make my own not too long ago, and I was just amazed at how easy it was. I made one in, like, five minutes. I'm definitely impressed by them, like, listening to their users and saying, like, okay, this is what they're doing, let's make it easier. I
1: feel like Vine really shows, like, the pulse of youth culture. I feel that I have such a better insight into how much has changed from people who are, you know, 12 to... So I would say like <laughs> 22, you know, right, uh, right. but then there's also the weird comfort of how much has not changed. Every time I see like a essentially like I hate school vine or like I hate homework <laughs> vine, I'm just like, oh, man, just...
0: Like this is totally the same. It's just different music and different fashion.
1: We feel like things are so different, but they're not, you know, but then I, I'm also like astonished by the creativity that can come out of vine people do some amazing work for seven seconds and not with like right. direct payoff it's not like youtube where you can get funding per loop right or like per right. play it becomes apparent that there are brands and corporations who start you know funding some of these viners to is vine or the word It's viners, the word, right?
0: (laughs) I don't know what the noun is for a participant of vine. I think for the sake of argument, we could say viners. Yeah. Let's call them
1: viners. Yeah, viners. It sounds like a hyper (laughs) hyper winemaker. There is, like, sponsorship in that way, but there's just something about this, like, just this nature of wanting to be seen and wanting to be heard and wanting to be connected that is just really powerful for me. The flip side of that is when you go to, like because they aggregate their channels as like most viewed and then, um, which I really like, you can do in real time essentially, happening now. And that's when you see like more of an underbelly in terms of there's a lot of people who, especially teens or young kids, are trying to express something With this platform in this, like, very awkward teenage way. And then that brings me to, like, another moment of remembering all the times where I had no idea what the fuck was going on as a kid. (laughs) And I... I don't know what I would have done if I had that type of platform. And, like, you can sometimes, like, watch little kids, like, look into the camera and be like, I'm ugly, and then see this on loop where it's like, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. And I'm like, oh, this is so painful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was definitely having a conversation with a few people about this. And just this idea of, I have no idea what the fuck I would do if I had ubiquitous connections to... The whole entire world in my feelings <laughs> you know even just podcasting or things of that nature like I thought some pretty fucked up stuff when I was a kid right and I just know for a fact that so much stuff will come back to bite me right now
1: I think I was thinking about like how connected teenagers are in terms of I, I don't know how to say this without sounding like the worst person ever I remember being so mean as a kid because I was so angry about so many things I'm so fortunate that i didn't have something like this to continue my bullying or like Uh, self-loathing in like a way that was then archived for the ages teens have to be smarter now right this Mm -hmm. is just a thing because they have to navigate this type of broadcasting
0: Like like i can just imagine like i'm thinking back to my grade one self right now and i was out on the playground You know, it was our first snow. I loved the snow. I loved making snowmen. And I built this snowman. It was the most beautiful snowman. It was also the most awkward looking snowman. It honestly just looked like a pound of sugar. (laughs) But I was so proud of the snowman. And then I still remember this one kid who bullied the fuck out of me. He saw me making my snowman. He kicked over that snowman. And I remember I was so pissed. And I just imagined, what if I had a Vine account? What would I have probably have said... (laughs) It just would have just uh, blown my mind. I'm actually kind of thankful for that. But then again, like I'm not that far in age from these people. If I like think about it completely,
1: I'm definitely removed. I'm not old enough to be any of their moms. But like, (laughs) I'm I'm definitely old enough to be like the sister that might have been, you know, starting college and being like, "What are you doing?
0: (laughs) Like, you guys are nerds. Devices. Why are you doing this thing?"
1: I think that the platform is catering to really creative teens. That comes the price of all of these teenagers, especially black teenagers, creating a lot of this, like, really influential. And popular culture changing content and not receiving any type of accolades or financial compensation for their efforts. And yeah, it
0: reminds me completely of that uh, Doreen St. Felix piece uh, I think I was talking to you about, about the black teens not seeing any of their profits from, you know, creating a majority of the internet content out there.
1: One of the things that resonated with me the most is I think when it comes to like the more highly produced vines, it seems like a clear injustice of, well, this was like content that was highly curated and crafted it obviously deserves to be compensated but there's also like these little intersections like words that are entered into the ecosystem that like major brands then add into their campaigns and make like significant profits it's like one thing to see somebody snatch a vine and then put it on their own youtube account and then you know profit based off of views on youtube right that's like quick and dirty and it's like clearly wrong but then with the situation like the word on fleek which was created by Like, a 14-year-old named Kayla Newman? That then, yeah, it ended up in... Right here
0: in Chicago, by the way.
1: It ended up in, like, Nicki Minaj and Ariana Grande songs, but it also ended up in, like, IHOP ads. Not only has she not seen, like, fiscal compensation, but even recognition. Like, in the article, it says that, like, no one has approached her to... I mean, even say thanks, thanks for giving us this.
0: Right, right, right. And that's something that actually, you know, fascinates me almost on the daily. And it's this idea of um, ownership of culture, especially with the dissemination of the internet. I mean, there's the added benefit of being able to share like a day in the life and anyone being able to see it. But then it also makes it much easier for people to then steal it in a way, you know, like the way Peaches Monroe talked is the way I hear a lot of kids whenever I take the bus, To go down to um, work or anything. Like, I hear people talk. And it's even how, like, my family members talk. And without the internet, that would just stay within our own cultures and be away from people that's like, oh, that's great. Now let me take that.
1: I also think that the internet has created a situation where it has spotlighted and, and manipulated and used, especially, like, cultural language, especially black cultural language, I think right. a lot about... Do you do you know Annie Fee? Mm-hmm. No, she, no recollection. Okay, so she is... She became really popular on YouTube. Essentially a, a black woman who... Is like incredibly sassy and cooks in her kitchen. And now, like, from YouTube, it's expanded to like a really popular Facebook page. She's now been on Steve Harvey, she's been on other shows. The first video, I don't know if she understands why everyone finds it funny because she's like cooking this like dessert and she's trying to make a cooking show. And her nephew's like, oh, well, what are you making? She's like, I don't know, something sweet for the fucking kids. It became this catchphrase. And she's brought on to a lot of things in this way that it makes sense. Like her style of Southern cooking is a tradition and it's comforting and it's for her family and it's fun and then there's also this audience that's kind of laughing and mocking her at the same time and it's this really weird situation where she's actually getting paid for it like she's making money now she's like going to be in the new barbershop video or was in the new barbershop video she has leveraged some success but is it fortunate to be a part of a joke that you might not be aware of Hmm. i don't know
0: um i personally think that it's okay because this is something that she's owning this is something that she is actively participating in. And I find the fault of the people that are laughing at her. Obviously, that's a form of othering. Like, there is some sort of othering that's happening here of the people that are laughing at her. And that is, and that is what happens when a way that you would talk within familiar culture or people you're familiar comfortable with is seen outside of that space. I mean, like, I'm pretty sure right now I'm doing a form of code switching talking to you versus how I would talk to my family members. And it's just a very natural thing. So like in her case, she's speaking the way that she would around people she's completely familiar with. But then when you bring the internet into play, you're creating that private moment publicly for whoever wants to click. At the same time, I'm like, get your money. (laughs) But (laughs) I mean, it's something to think about critically. Like why are people not laughing with her, but at her?
1: In the case of the teenagers, I feel it is the same sense of, I don't want to call amphi exploitation because she does own her brand. Now everybody that's producing all of her work is conscious of what makes her successful. With the teens on Vine, I don't get the same sense of mocking as I do with something like that blatant. Like Amphi, unlike Amphi, they don't get the choice to own their content anymore, and that to me is like what's really troubling mm-hmm. in
0: in terms of. You also find it troubling the uh, sort of watering down of culture.
1: Absolutely, and about to say that the internet is this pioneering disruption and progressive platform that I want it to be, where. Mm-hmm. People get to have their own voice and get to show their culture and their interaction. But what is happening, so much of these infrastructures are are out of the control of the users, is that instead of celebrating subcultures, we are exploiting subcultures instead of providing avenues for black teens to have a voice we're giving them a stage and then collectively taking the power away from them seems like a really troubling dynamic most people aren't recognizing
0: okay so how do you feel like brands could be better participants in internet culture let's say ihop came across the Peaches Monroe video. First time they ever did. What would you have felt like would have been a great next step for them versus saying, oh, this is great. I'm going to snag this. Without giving credit.
1: This is where it becomes hard because it, it's the discussion of does the brand have the response, like the social and conscious responsibility? The idealistic version of this is that they do and that they reach out to her, incorporate her into the campaign, or compensate her in some way. That would be right. the ideal version. But the way that our society is set up and the capitalism that we've allowed to form is that. There is no social responsibility of IHOP. Then we have to rely back on the users of being upset that a brand would exploit our community that way. At some point, when does, you know, me, for example, like we're talking about this because we see some type of fault in it, or at least I see fault and i'm assuming you do as well i can with my dollar not go to ihop i can use this platform to talk about how i think it's wrong but there's not a critical conversation happening amongst people who use social media in general if we're going to have this community that is okay with watering down all these subcultures and sub communities then they need to be advocates when those communities are exploited and that's just not happening
0: i feel like the biggest step would be um and I believe it was kind of mentioned in the Doreen St. Felix piece on the Vader, is this idea of... of, education Mm -hmm. um, to these communities and giving people more and more information on, you know, what it takes to copyright and what your rights are when producing art, entertainment, stuff for the internet. That way you can better on hold on to the things that you create. And I've seen that become more and more popular um, with, especially out here in Chicago, a lot of um, different after school programs are focusing a lot on production of art and design and actually thinking more about the business side of it. I think, that's where it should start before anything else i mean like i think it's good that we're talking about it but then we're also talking about it um as like a point of privilege and almost as like this idea of cultural critics sure as you will you know i
1: think that's exactly what we are cultural critics at this point both of us run podcasts that think critically about the way people are participating right online to go back to the on fleek vine i think that it becomes hard even with the education when you don't know that you are actually making something that's going to become creative capital when she mm-hmm. produced that vine there was no part of her that was doing it to create like a piece of work or content maybe to create content but more of a innocuous like this is my platform this is what i'm interested in I, my eyebrows are on fleek i'm you know i'm done like <laughs> it wasn't that's
0: a But to be fair, who's to say she wasn't? Who's to say that she posted that with the mindset of, yo, this is something that I love this word I think that this word is popular enough to me that I want to share it to the world like that very well could have been her thought process but we don't know
1: (laughs) I'm basing that off of the assumptions of the article when when she said like oh I created this word and that's cool there's a sense of like understanding that people are now profiting off of it and it seemed overall she was content with the idea of just contributing something new to your point with some education around these topics and how to protect yourself from, you know, copyright and being exploited or how to own your intellectual property might have given her a different perspective in terms of when the word became so ubiquitous in our culture that she could have had some type of claim or ownership to it.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of like the strange double-edged sword of um, not necessarily the internet, but more along the lines of social network platforms that are owned by larger companies Mm -hmm. is that you exchange the idea of exposure for... The ownership of information all within what else things the service agreements i forgot what those things are called
1: you click but the that. thing that you don't read when you sign yeah, up.
0: There's, there's lines in there that says, like, such and such owns this data and you have right um all this jazz. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm actively participating in this, like, idea that I can reach a larger audience in exchange of me not owning this. I mean, like, she could have posted this video on her own private server to her own private website and all those type of things. And granted, she would own the content, but it would not have gained the popularity.
1: That's such a great point. All of these platforms are in agreement with a company. It's not this free space that exists that we are paying for. We are in many other ways, fiscally and emotionally and time-wise, but not directly. What resonates to me in terms of focusing on the teens in this space, you know, we started the conversation talking about how teens are possibly more savvy or smarter or adapted to this type of visibility and vulnerability of social media. But on the flip side, there still is like the amount of time you've been on Earth and understanding the repercussions of your actions is not something that even at 32, I'm like super or I'm 31.
0: I'm super oh,
1: I'm super confident about.
0: Yeah, that's completely fair.
1: You shared with me a podcast, uh, Desus and Mira, about how they're actually creating commercial viability with their cultural content.
0: It's something that I see incredibly fascinating. Um, because I remember, you know, coming across their accounts like a couple of years ago and all they did was just tweet. They were just like two regular dudes from the Bronx borough of New York and they just (laughs) tweeted funny things. And that was just their thing. Like they just existed on Twitter. What really began to be interesting was larger brands and online publications became aware of them. And I, th- I want to say Complex was the first people to reach out to them to give them their first podcast together. And then that's when it's sort of like you're legitimizing your brand of comedy mm-hmm. through the stage of someone else and having it exist outside of a social network, which then again introduces itself to more traditional methods of payout. So, for instance, things like sponsorship or things like um, like promoted content, and then getting more and more connections with other shows that they've done on like MTV, for instance, and now their new podcast, which is sort of like an interesting native advertisement for Red Bull, uh, which is very very fascinating. Um, but it's an idea of somebody who of like two two men. I think that's also really interesting to. Bring up as well as compared to Peaches, who I believe she identifies as a woman. That's also a very interesting thing. Like two grown men and their ability to pivot that and have that be more acceptable.
1: Originally, when you shared this with me, would you say that their commercial viability actually was sustained by Twitter? Because it seems like the catalyst into the more traditional media is what has allowed them to sustain at least their visible practice?
0: I mean, when I was first introduced to them, it was just solely through Twitter. So it was just through friends of mine who had retweeted some of their funny tweets. And I saw, I was like, okay, like, this is pretty funny. Um, And that was all that I've seen of them, you know, just like in various, um, like, hashtag conversations and things of that nature. And then I began to see them more visibly outside of Twitter once they started to do more things outside of social networks. So things like the podcast, things like doing television shows, those type of things. So it's like really interesting because very rarely can somebody just exist as a profitable and popular platform on a social network, with the exception of some publications like The Shade Room on Instagram. It's hard, (laughs) it seems. It's very hard.
1: Well, and I think that this is an instance where you talked about the social media platform talks about this exchange, this exchange of content for visibility. And that even the Peaches, Kayla, in the article, when she mentioned that she didn't receive any type of compensation or a lot of credit, yet for on fleek. She said, good things come to those who wait. The exposure is enough that it will eventually benefit me in some way. The one thing that seems kind of complicated about this idea of using the exposure of social media to catapult you into more traditional forms of media that can then possibly pay you, is the social media then actually revolutionary in terms of being able to become popular and financially viable? Or is it just the first step in in allowing the same kind of media structure and system to always exist just with a new avenue to get there.
0: I feel like it's more of the latter at the moment just mainly because there's still a there's still the problem of monetization mm-hmm. at least for the individual user. You know like social media has no issue with the companies getting rich for this type of thing. But if you're looking to solely get rich or even not even rich, but just make a comfortable living, is ex- existing on a social media platform, you're pretty much nuts. Yeah. I mean, like, every, everyone, that I, everyone that I know of that, like, has, like, fairly large social media platforms, it's not because of just they're great at social media. It's because they do something great outside of it, and the social media platform acts as, like, a megaphone to all the cool shit that they're doing, you know? Very rarely do you know somebody that is, like, just popular online just because they're great at being online. You know, it's because they're adding some sort of value to the conversation or value to whatever it is that they create.
1: That idea of being popular to be popular, right? Just being really good at social media is kind of a delusion that I think a lot of people have sold themselves in terms of,
0: <laughs> of like. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah,
1: like how to make it. I agree with you that you have to be having thoughtful, important discourses and creating some type of critical conversation or entertainment or spectacle or something that then people will be interested enough in you to want to know about you. The only thing that seems kind of contradictory to that is Instagram popularity in terms of, I I mean, like, I guess in the one sense, you're creating compelling visuals or sexual images or, you know, things along those lines. So I guess maybe I just talked myself out of my own thing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because <laughs> you're still creating I mean, content. I mean, it's a fair argument to be made because uh, Instagram is more visually based. And, you know, us as humans, we're visual people.
1: Well, and then, the you know, the idea you you shared with me, which then I shared with a few of my friends, is the popular pays, which I think oh. you said that a, a mutual friend of ours, Dana Bassett, shared with you. Yeah. Hey, Dana. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Dana. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I find that really interesting, especially as somebody who likes to save money. And <laughs> it's like it's like this weird thing where it's like am i okay with being a personal advertiser but at the same time i can get a free coffee i feel like we should set it up a little bit for people who, who have no idea what popular pays is what happens is um let's say you pull up the app And it's kind of like uh, Foursquare, which is a very popular um, recommendation engine for businesses around (laughs) you that are linked up with the popular pays service. And if you have, let's say, 500 or more Instagram followers and you start to unlock these deals for free, usually it's food. Usually it's coffee. For some businesses, it's clothing or things of that nature. And in exchange for this free item, you just have to Instagram the item that you get and tag the business and popular pays in it. So good example is over towards the coworking space I work at, there is a Stance Donut. Fantastic donut shop. Love their food. Love their coffee. But if I had 500 Instagram followers, I could go in and get a free Stance coffee in exchange of me posting a photo of that coffee on Instagram. So it's this weird exchange of brand visibility through your personal platform. So it's kind of like a strange native advertisement in exchange for free things.
1: Yeah, I...
0: <laughs> as as you go dissertation no no here,
1: you know like again i didn't download the app i'm not popular enough for it you shared this with me uh i shared it with a few of my friends who have like uh emily eaton who ha- was a previous guest on the podcast whose like goal is to be like instagram famous to get paid for it and talks about it all the time and she does post these very compelling pictures so I, sh- I sent this over her way, but I didn't really think too much of it in terms of, until you just made that very articulate description of how this works, of how scary it seems that we would negotiate with ourselves the loss of our personal social media profiles for the exchange of, like, a coffee.
0: I'm actually going to challenge you on that. Okay. Because I used to think it was fairly scary, too, until I realized that, how many of those free concerts that you've probably, and myself, have gone to that have just been sponsored by large beer events? Have you gone to any one of those before? I did go to one by Chipotle before. It's actually very interesting. Like, you'll find out about these quote-unquote secret shows, and it's like you have to email in order to get in for free. In exchange, like, you have to go in and, like, you take a photo in front of this large branded thing and you get free drinks and stuff, but in, in the end, in they also in like the fine print, um, it's like you're being photographed for this event, and then you see the images later on, and they're actually used for a commercial. So in exchange, you are again trading free goods in exchange for free publicity. Sure. So it's like we're all in, we're all in this wild and mixed together world of commerce, <laughs> whether we like it or not.
1: Because the model that you just explained has been happening. For a long time. The corporately sponsored event that's quote free for users. Right. I think that it's interesting that we are allowing this to move on to a digital space. I think that that so much of the conversations I've been having lately is about I've been engaged in prior conversations where people talk about the internet as this like really scary place that allows all of these negative things to happen. And the more conversations I've been having is it's becoming a reality to me that the internet is just starting to become a mirrored reflection of our offline lives, right? There's nothing exactly. different. There's right. there's things that we have negotiated and come to terms with and kind of are allowing to happen to us without much questioning in our real life, quote, real life. This is all our real life, but right. life. and. I find it interesting that we are allowing it to move to our online life because there's a lot less visibility into what we lose freedom-wise or expression-wise online because like with the free event, since you're physically there, you see a lot of the infrastructure. You don't necessarily know all of the conversations that happen about what will the marketing will be after the content's created from the event. But you see Mm -hmm. it happening where most users online have no concept of the infrastructure that they're participating in, the data that's being collected, where that data's going, who it's being sold to outside of. But it is strange that so many things that happen offline are starting to happen online in like an almost seamless transition without mm-hmm.
0: too much yeah, critical and, thought. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with you completely on that. And that's why like I personally find it a huge noise when people try to separate the worlds between like quote unquote offline and online. Like it is, it's an exact replica of how we live our lives. It's just extended through the digital sphere, you know? And that's a whole nother conversation. Maybe we should do another episode on that <laughs> about this idea of people quote unquote disconnect when they're online, we're having a conversation right now. It's an amplification. It is. It's um, it's just like your real life, just times three, because you can connect to many different people.
1: Especially for places and spaces that are geared towards communication and connection to even though it is the world wide web and our reach is really far, we're usually talking to a very small segmented audience. In terms of like my friends now posting coffee pictures so they can get coffee for free, or clothing. It's a different type of marketing than ever before because I'm taking the picture as a sincere statement from a friend. I'm not necessarily looking at it with the bias of, oh, my friend must just really like that coffee, not my friend's getting this coffee for free.
0: Yeah, and that's especially true with Instagram because the whole juice of that matter is that that image of that product is being passively co-signed by seeing your friend's avatar in the upper left-hand corner of the UI versus scrolling past a sponsor post and seeing, like, Stan's coffee in the upper left-hand corner. It's stronger. It's much stronger. It's
1: much It's much stronger.
0: Yeah, and speak Stan's if you want to sponsor this episode. You <laughs> should. <laughs> You don't know. I could be beta testing a new version of Popular Pays where I go on podcasts and talk about different brands. Right, and they're
1: using I voice recognition, paid. and every time you say right. stands, you're getting a dollar. Right. You
0: yeah, bastard. Literally, I'm looking at my phone right now, and I keep getting push notifications. That I'm getting, like, dollars and dollars popping <laughs> into my bank account. Every time I say stands. Stands, You should go to stands.
1: I think that this is a perfect segue to talk about how... <laughs> Like with all of this kind of socially driven marketing and socially are able to, you know, connect data and statistics, what seems interesting, especially with talking about Instagram, is that now are these values of understanding quote unquote worth, you know, with popular pays, the more people, the more popular that you are, the more likes you have, the more stuff you can unlock and get, is this concept now dictating how digital artwork is being viewed, how artwork in general online is being valued.
0: I'm just saying, especially as the both of us that do primarily make work that is digitally native, you know?
1: You mentioning like like, uh, like a sponsored podcast or something along those lines, usually there's a conversation of like, oh, you do a podcast. What's it about? How often does it come out? And then almost immediately, how many people listen? It's like a a natural follow-up to, what are you worth? What is this content worth?
0: Yeah, and that's very interesting because you would would very rarely um, speak to someone who makes objects. Like, let's say we're speaking to a friend who is a sculptor. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're a sculptor? That's awesome. What do you primarily work in? Um, Where have you shown? And by the way, how many people came to your last show? It would seem so off-putting and rude. That sounds strange, right?
1: Right. And it happens time and again. Like, any type of social media type of artwork or projects. Well, how many people shared it? How many people saw it? When I was doing a web series very actively, there was a major conversation that the two of us had about the idea of monetizing our content on YouTube. And we went back and forth with this idea of does it hurt or hinder or help ultimately we ended up not monetizing the web series but there every time we created something that we thought like man this is like this has a chance of going viral there was that moment of well are we are we shortchanging ourselves okay we're not deriving our value from money or views or likes but does that mean that we should not get money for it
0: yeah and i think that's kind of like the devil in making digitally-based work because you have such clear accessibility to metrics that almost you think of your worth of your piece based on how many people have seen it, shared it, clicked on it, etc. As far as profiting goes, I personally don't have an issue with it. Like mm-hmm. for instance, one of the podcasts that I do, we have sponsors. We actively look for sponsors just because I look at it as a time based value thing. If I'm spending X amount of time on this, that I could be spending elsewhere i should be somehow making contributions toward my rent (laughs) (laughs) Um, the james t green foundation (laughs) right right and i think like that's something that especially as artists we should be talking more really about i'm completely against this romantic idea of like the artist has to suffer for creating culture and not have money like more people should talk about money more people should be like yeah I have no issue with my digital art being a monetized thing, you know?
1: No, absolutely. And like the, to clarify, the problem that we found with the monetization with YouTube is that there would be an ad that played over top of the content because that's how they make their money. So it was more about like compromising the visual component of, because we were finding based off of metrics that many of our users were watching our content mobily. And having a mobile ad mm-hmm. pop up on a web series is really a nuisance. And most of the time can cause somebody to stop watching. Very yeah, true. To your point, I get infuriated at the idea that artists try to pretend that they're not involved in a capitalist system. When art is one mm-hmm. of the most foundational points of like traditional capitalism. And I mm-hmm. feel that the whole artist suffering thing like you're talking about... It's usually the suffering artist in two thousand sixteen is designated to women and people of color. So I don't think that most artists that are that are male and white don't have to make the negotiation of being a starving artist <laughs>
0: uh, or or to expand on that further. The majority of those that may consciously choose to suffer, quote unquote, suffer, have the backbone of a stable foundation to lean back parents.
1: on. Even with education comes stability. At this point in my life, even though uh, my family doesn't have the financial backing, if I completely, you know, if I decided to not work for a living and I decided to, you know, do the suffering that you talk about. Because of all of my education, I have a, a a strong foundation of at least friends that could support me. I will never be homeless right. at this point in my life. i got to really burn some bridges to do that. And maybe I should stop <laughs> saying I will never be homeless so people don't p- prove me wrong. But
0: like, um, <laughs> They're going to be like, oh, we're going to make sure.
1: But I also think that it's really easy for traditional artists to talk about this idea of anti-capitalism because the digital space seems so aligned with consumerism. But to me, creating traditional objects are so much more rooted in the exchange, like like common commerce exchange, right? A painting is easy. Yeah, because, yeah. know,
0: I was just like really vibing on your point. Um, like the exchange of a product hand-to-hand, there is that actual physical trading of goods, especially in a traditional sense. I just immediately thought of like, Another during Saint Felix um, piece that was about Rihanna that she wrote for um, for Pitchfork, and it was the idea of the song "Bitch Better Have My Money," mm-hmm. but it was speaking about it critically in the sense of like the money being like this powerful object and like how the idea in the video that the money was this physical representation um, that you saw it visually and those type of things. And that reminds me a lot of like, especially physically based artists that are participating in this capitalistic venture of like i am physically handing you over a product and you may not be giving me a box full of cash but there is some sort of like physical object that is being traded and lost is kind of lost in the digital world you know
1: it's totally lost and or it's at least incredibly abstracted where because the object not only is it familiar but it's a demarcation of time it's harder to understand like i don't Both of us who make podcasts, we know how laborious they can be. An hour-long podcast can take multiple hours to edit. Then there's the production around it, the, the content, the social media output, everything that goes into it, you're talking about something... That takes a really long time, but it's not, that time isn't as tangible as when it's in a painting or a sculpture. The no. craft isn't as tangible. You can, when you listen to a podcast that's produced poorly, you can tell immediately, but when it's produced well, you're not thinking about it. And that's not the same right. with traditional making. The same thing with digital art. Like, to most people, when something is produced online, it's almost like magic. And then there's an assumption because it's you, created with technology, it can be done quickly. And that's just not the case. So it's twofold. It's hard for non-digital people to understand the significant amount of parallels that there are between traditional making and online and digital making in terms of like effort and craft and purpose and time. But then there's also the complication of Well, I want to own something, and I want to have an exclusive view of it, and I want the scarcity of it. And online work just doesn't allow for that to happen, which I think is an amazing thing. And I also think that the fact that online work challenges the idea of exclusivity, scarcity, and is really important to where art can eventually go. I think that things, be, right. our world is still so tethered to this, whether every artist wants to pretend that they, they're not a capitalist or When you make objects and you put them into this system, that's what they are. They're objects. They're things of purchase. <laughs> that's how people view mm-hmm.
0: them. Right. And you and you brought up two great points that actually is helping me kind of connect the dots. So I think maybe you might have answered your question about why statistics are so tethered to digital artworks and that's the idea of like that is the only form of sort of physicality or proof that somebody can have because there's no exchange of physical objects that's like okay what is the only piece of proof that i can have what is the only quote-unquote fact that i can see and that's the numbers Mm -hmm. yeah and then the second point i just forgot (laughs) You said a lot of good stuff there.
1: The reason that statistics become, like you're saying, so important to digital work is statistics and data are so tethered and aligned to production and money in this new commercialism that we're experiencing. Because the arts unfortunately have been so tethered to money. <laughs> the only way to understand most people to understand art's value is to know how much money they can make off of it. It's not sad when you're on the right end of it, but it is an, unf- <laughs> right. it, it is an unfortunate situation in terms of the way we're allowing you know all of us to derive value from art. That it's still sure. so connected to this idea of money when the message and what it's saying and what it's doing is supposed to be the most important thing. To take this all the way back to the beginning of the conversation where you called yourself a conceptual artist and how I have wrangled with that idea is of calling myself that is actually silly that I would would ever pause in terms of the most important thing of any piece of work whether it's object-based, digital, sound, is the concept. Because that's what's supposed mm-hmm. to be creating the resonance to the viewer, to the audience.
0: And especially as, like, you know, the both of us that like to dabble in a variety of mediums, it kind of, it personally helps for me to not think about so much what type of medium I have to use, but just more along the lines of, I have this idea, what is the best way to come up um, in explaining and displaying this idea.
1: The notion of like I'm a painter, I'm a sculptor, I'm a I'm an artist. Whatever medium I need to use to communicate the idea, whatever will serve the concept the best should be what I'm pursuing at that moment. And not that there's any type of diminished sense if somebody is very particular on craft, but a lot of times this becomes right. a different acknowledgement that craft and art might just be different. And it doesn't mean that one is worse or better, but we can't keep relying on the mastery of craft to define art because the mastery mm-hmm. of craft think, becomes too tethered to money.
0: Yeah, and I think that that actually reminds me of the second point that I was going to tell you. This yes! The idea of like craft and art. Yeah, thanks for pulling that out of me. The idea of time, and especially when it comes to digital art. And I think craft is also lauded because craft usually is seen as something that is laborious mm-hmm. and time-consuming. And especially when it comes to digital work, the time may be much lower in producing, like a website-based artwork. If you're good at making websites, it may have taken you an hour to create the work, but you may have been sitting on the idea for months. Yeah, It may have been a very research-heavy project. It's a very mentally-consuming project. And just because something takes an hour to create, to quote-unquote create, doesn't discount the value that it brings.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. You kind of fool yourself when you're in art school that if you spend a lot of time on something, it has like an inherent worth. Like, for some, it's valuable because you spent a bunch of time on it. And then you could see somebody produce something that maybe took 15 minutes, but created such a powerful discourse that it. It blew your time away. It didn't yep. matter. That is an amazing thing that the internet has provided us, is this idea that it absolutely does not matter if it took months, years, or minutes. And I think that this is why when content goes viral, that also becomes this sense of worth, that popularity. Because look at this like small thing that can be created, that can infiltrate people in such a profound way. That, to me, has nothing to do with time it has everything to do with resonance and importance and emotional and like visceral experience.
0: And a healthy mix of good timing. Yeah. A lot <laughs> that, of too.
1: that too. That yeah. right, too. Right place, right time. This seems kind of like a natural end. Yeah, I feel it. I feel yeah, it. Yeah, this was a really great conversation. We talked about a lot of things and a lot of things that I didn't anticipate either.
0: Isn't that the beauty in podcasting?
1: It is. James T. Green. You kill it, man. Uh, this was a great This is a great talk.
0: Thanks, again. Thanks, for, um, thanks for inviting me into your lovely internet home in San Francisco. <laughs> thanks. Kind of feel the warmth, but I've got like a space heater here because it's negative six.
1: Oh, it's, it's so. 70. Where can people find you online?
0: <laughs> so you can find me at jamestgreen.com. From there, you can find me on Twitter at underscore James T. Green. And if you want to hear more of my voice, you can check out my two podcasts. One is at openended.fm, and the other one is refresh.simplecast.fm.
1: I hope you enjoyed this show. Help people discover this podcast by rating Lee and the Internet on iTunes. And as always, please share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter, at and the Internet and on the blog at leandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash Internet.